Well, last week I started us off by calling your attention to the life of royals, men and women, who throughout the ages have enjoyed great privileges. And in particular, I mentioned King Louis XIV, the extremely privileged king of France. And this morning I figured I'd also start us off by pointing you to another famous French monarch, tell you about Queen Marie Antoinette. Born in 1755, she was Austrian in birth and upbringing, and she always enjoyed a a privileged and royal lifestyle as well. And in 1770, she married Louis-Auguste, a French royal, as part of a political alliance between France and Austria. Four years later, her husband happened to become King Louis XVI, and then Marie became queen, the Queen of France. Louis XVI reigned until 1792, and initially the people loved her. They were charmed by her beauty, her personality. But St. Marie developed a negative reputation for abusing and squandering her privilege. Her marriage was empty. Her husband lost interest in her. And so she made up for the lack of affection by spending money, gambling, shopping, buying shoes and clothes, trips to the city. Her seemingly unlimited funds made her the fashion icon at the court. She also spent a lot of money lavishly renovating the living quarters on the grounds at Versailles and spending on a lot of other building projects as well. It has been said of Marie Antoinette that she saw France as a bottomless purse to be drained for her personal pleasure. Later, as financial troubles mounted in France, most of the fingers were pointed at her and she was thought to have single-handedly ruined the finances of the nation and was nicknamed Madame deficit. In all honesty, though, although she received much of the blame, she was not the only culprit. It wasn't all her fault. All of the royals were living this life of privilege and seemingly squandering their money, their wealth, and the, the commoners were stuck footing the bill. One percent of the population, the royals, they owned 40 percent of the land. They paid no taxes. Everyone else, the commoners, paid an income tax rate at about 80 percent. In all this, Marie's husband, Louis XVI, was not much better himself. Louis XVI was self-indulgent and uninterested in ruling the people. He didn't care about the welfare of the people. His only interest was in hunting, shooting, lock-making, and theater. He also made no effort to keep expenses within the budget, and when there was a shortfall, he just made up for it with taxes. And even as the national debt skyrocketed, he continued to spend money on the construction of a royal mansion. All the royals and the clergy enjoyed wealth and privilege, mostly at the expense of the commoners and those who were living miserable lives in the population. And it's no wonder then that this atmosphere produced the French Revolution. It was during the reign that the French Revolution occurred. The abuses of the monarchy, their selfishness, their immorality, their lack of concern for the people, their financial irresponsibility, and their squandering of their privilege all fueled the flames of revolution. People had enough, they were fed up with it, and they revolted to return the power to the people. During this time, the royal family tried to flee to start a counter-rebellion, take over the monarchy, take it back, but this failed, And King Louis XVI was found guilty of treason and beheaded in 1792. And things didn't end necessarily better for Marie Antoinette either. People were not favorable of her lifestyle. They perceived her as squandering her great privilege on herself, not caring for the people. She should have done more with her position of power, influence, and prestige to help the people, but she didn't. And she was likewise beheaded in 1793. Last week, in our study of 1 Peter, we observed how greatly privileged we are as Christians to have salvation. Our salvation, brought to us by God himself, is the greatest privilege in the universe. It really is. And just thinking about it should evoke appreciation and thankfulness But we ended last time with an unanswered question. What should you do about it? What should you do with this privilege? What are you doing with this privilege? Are you living in a manner worthy of it? And what happens when you squander 
this privilege. You've been given a privilege far exceeding that of any French or otherwise royal, but are you putting this privilege to good use as God intends? Or are you squandering it? If you are found to be squandering your salvation, there is a catch. You see, if you're not living out your salvation rightly before God, your salvation is not then taken away from you. It's not. Rather, this is merely evidence that you never had this privilege to begin with. The nature of the salvation is such that it will always bring about its intended end. So the real question is, will you simply be found faithful and true, or will you be found false with a false profession characterized by your life? And your response will tell. Today, it's all about your response. What does it look like? What then does this right response to salvation look like? And much of the remainder of First Peter answers this question. You now have the greatest gift, the greatest privilege in all the universe. So now what? Now what do you do with it? How do you respond? Peter gives us the answer. and Today we're going to take our first dose because there's more to come. And after laying the doctrinal foundation in verses 1 through 12, telling us about salvation, now he's going to move on to the discipline of Christian living. And he follows a, f- a familiar theme in scripture of an indicative imperative what it's called, which means, first, he tells us who we are, the facts. Second, he's, he's going to tell us now how we are to be. And this will continue throughout much of First Peter. Before this morning, now, our, our attention is on verses 13 through 16 in chapter 1. So if you haven't already, turn to First Peter chapter 1 and read along with me verses 13 through 16. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The first word that should arrest your attention in this section is the first word. What is it? Therefore. Every time you see therefore, you need to train yourselves to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? The answer is to chain together what proceeds with what follows. Like a sailor who binds together two lines with a knot, Peter is binding these two sections together. And what follows is a consequence of what came before. Like we read last time, we have this great, this proven, this privileged salvation, verses 1 through 12. So, therefore, verses 13 through 16. Now, do verses 13 through 16. Heed verses 13 through 16. Verses 1 through 12 described our salvation. Now we see a description of how we should respond to our salvation. And because of this, I want to, from our text, simply show you how the Christian should respond to salvation so that you may have the right response. That's what we're going to do today. Simple. How the Christian should respond to salvation so you may have the right response. And just two points here. First is to be hopeful. The first part of this right response is simply to be hopeful. I'll explain this. Look at verse 13. He says again, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you get to verse 13, here's where a little knowledge of ancient Greek pays off and helps you. Because if you look at this just from the English, it sounds like there are three commands given. Prepare your minds Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope. Sounds like there's three, but once you read the Greek, it becomes immediately clear there's actually only one command here. And can you guess which one it is? Fix your hope. Fix your hope. The two verbs before it, 
They're actually participles, which means they, they just modify, they help us understand what it means to fix your hope. So what Peter's really saying is, while preparing your minds, while keeping sober in spirit, you should focus on fixing your hope. Fixing your hope, it's at the center, it's the main thrust, and that's why it's the first right response to our salvation, to be hopeful. Number one, be hopeful. In English, we use the word hope to communicate desire, but not really certainty. Hope is it's wishful thinking, like, I hope the Dodgers will win this year. Or, if you're a Cubs fan, I hope the Cubs will win this year, and that's really wishful thinking. And we hope it's not going to rain. We hope there won't be traffic. We hope we're not getting sick. When you think about it, we use hope to express positive thinking in the midst of doubt. We're actually doubting when we use hope. Biblically, though, hope, it's not such wishful thinking in the midst of doubt. It's, it's a strong expectation. You expect something, and you're willing to act on it. You will live accordingly. Let's say you, you are a Dodgers fan, and you do hope they win the World Series this year. You know, I hope they win the World Series. Well, let's test that hope. Would you be willing to bet your house on it and your savings account that they will win the World Series this year? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't even think I'd put down $20. Biblically, though, those who hope in Christ and in his return, they would. They would put down everything because that's how sure they are of this hope. And that's the difference. Biblical hope, it's a confidence in the future. It's a certainty. And I like how Hebrews 6.19 puts it. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. He says our hope, it's an anchor of the soul. An anchor, you know what it is. It's a steadfast object that keeps a ship from drifting at sea. And that's our hope. It's an anchor. It's a steadfast object that keeps us from drifting this biblical hope then, which you should have, it's nearly equivalent to faith. Faith is trusting God for the present. Hope is trusting God for the future. And you throw in love, you got the three cardinal Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. But today, Peter, his focus is on hope. We're called to fix our hope completely, without doubt, without reservation, on the grace to be brought to us. And when he says grace here, he's using it synonymously with the salvation, the inheritance we've seen in the past 12 verses, if you remember. It's what we're confidently waiting for with assurance. This is this, this inheritance that's coming to us. What does that look like, though? What is exactly are we waiting for? I'll read you a few verses to explain. Romans 8.23 says, We are waiting eagerly for our adoption. As sons and the redemption of our body. Galatians 1.4 says, We are waiting for Christ to rescue us from this present evil age. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, We are waiting for an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then Revelation 7.16-17 kind of brings it all together and gives us a picture of, of what we're waiting for. And describes the time, he says, They will, in that time, They'll hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. The salvation, the full redemption that will be brought to us. This is the grace that will be brought to you by God. And in this, he says, this is what he's talking about. You should fix your hope upon what's coming. And the reason you can have such confidence, such surety in this end, is that it doesn't depend on you. This coming salvation doesn't depend on you, your, your works, your righteousness, your efforts. It depends on God's grace. It's the grace to be brought to us. If it did depend on us, my effort, my striving, there would be no hope. There's no hope in that. If you talk to people from other religions or like a Catholic, they're notorious for having no real hope. Their hope in salvation really is just like a wishful thinking because it's, it's up to them to, to earn it. And where's the hope in that? Not so for 
true believers, though, you are able to, with confidence, fix your minds on this future promise of full salvation because it doesn't depend on you to bring it about, but because it depends on God. That's where you can have confidence. When's it going to happen, though? When will this hope become real? When will this redemption be ours entirely? Well, he says it again, verse 13. Look there. He says, it comes, this grace is coming to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even at death, though we are freed from sin, we're not entirely complete. We wait, ultimately, the return of Christ, the consummation of the age, and believers will be glorified in the likeness of Jesus. It's not until Jesus returns in glory that we share in that glory with him. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 reads, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Colossians 3, 4 says much the same. It says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So that's why we're waiting for Christ to return. He comes in glory, and we find glory. So it's this salvation, this grace should be your hope. Maybe some of you here today hope in money. You find you get sick, you've got to go in the hospital for a little bit, you start to worry about the piling bills, but then you take comfort. Why? Well, at least I have my savings account. You're hoping in, in money. Maybe you hope in recreation. You hate your job. Working is just a chore. It's a drudgery. You're just not happy with it. But you take comfort in what? In your vacation that's just around the corner. You're hoping in recreation. Or maybe some of you hope in your health. You're on the verge of losing your house to the bank. Everything's just falling down around you. You're worrying, but you take comfort. At least I have my health. You're hoping in your health. None of these things, though, should be that which you fix your hope upon. What's he saying? Don't fix your hope on money or relationships or pleasures or recreation or health or stuff. He's saying fix your hope completely on the grace, the salvation, the inheritance to be brought to you. Do this. And do this especially when trials surface, especially in the hard times. If you want... A successful, victorious, fruitful Christian life. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. We're not quite done with verse 13, though. This is the main command, like I said. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. That's the main issue. The first right response to salvation. But there's more. Like I said earlier, verse 13 actually starts with these two participles, which really like... Like two wings on a plane, they help guide our hope and keep it afloat, keep it moving in the right direction. So let's take a look at these two phrases now. Look at verse 13 again. First, we are told to prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. In the English, again, we kind of lose out on the imagery in that phrase that's found in the Greek. Because in the Greek, literally, it's he's saying, gird the loins of your mind. Now today, we don't know what this means, so translators, they put, well, this means prepare your minds for action. But Peter's really expressing a very common and back then well-known phrase or idiom as they're called. And today, we've got sayings like this today. For example, if I said, you know, roll up your sleeves, you know what I mean. Back then, they they wouldn't have known what that meant. But today, you know, if I say roll up your sleeves, I'm not telling you to actually roll up your sleeves. I'm saying prepare yourself for some hard work. That's what it means. Back then, they had a phrase, gird your loins, and they knew what it meant. In the first century, the ordinary person wore a long garment made of linen or wool. It would go to the ankles, you know, touching the floor almost. And for regular usage, casual usage, they let it, they wore it long. But if they're going to do something active, like working or going to war, they would take the loose portion at the bottom and then tuck it up to the, into their belt And that act of tucking up the bottom is called girding, girding it. 
Now just imagine, you, know, you ever go to like a fancy hotel and you get one of those nice robes. I never ever wear a robe except when you go to the super fancy hotels. And you can just imagine wearing one of those big, heavy, white robes. It's going down to the floor. And then just for some reason, you need to run a mile. So you, you would take the bottom and tuck it up into that little belt, tie it tight. And there you go. You've girded yourself. And that's the image here. Soldiers back then in particular would gird themselves for battle. And so over time, this image of, of girding your loins then became synonymous with being prepared, with getting ready for what's to come, being ready to move. It's, it's describing preparedness. That's the image. Be ready. Be prepared for action. And that's what Peter means, except he's applying this to our minds. That's the metaphor. He's, he's really saying gird the loins of your mind. Imagine metaphorically pulling in all the loose ends of your thoughts. He's saying, don't let your mind become entangled with the world's hindrances. Loose thinking leads to loose living. We're pretty close, so just turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Just a few pages backwards, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews gives us a very good picture for living the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 12. You know, the first couple of verses here, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that if we are to run the Christian race, we need to get rid of all the baggage, all the sin in our life that they're entangling us, they're slowing us down. We've got to get rid of it. We're trying to run a race here. And what Peter is saying back in 1 Peter, it's similar, but he's saying, you know, sometimes these encumbrances, these sins, Take place in your mind. That's the point of 1 Peter. Our minds can be slowed down and entangled. And so if we're to be using our minds to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us, we can't afford to have our minds entangled. We need them, freed up. If God is to have your heart, if he's to have your life, he has to have your mind. And that's the point in 1 Peter. We turn back to 1 Peter now. Again, in verse 13, along the same lines, remember he's supporting this main command to fix your hope. He says, first, do it by preparing your minds. Secondly, he says, keeping sober in spirit. We fix our hope by keeping sober in spirit. Sober means well-balanced, self-controlled, when we speak of sober, we mean you know, free from substance abuse, drugs and alcohol, where your mind is being controlled by something else. And that's why the Bible speaks of you know, alcohol, and, or not alcohol, but drunkenness as a sin, because your mind is not in control. You're not being controlled by the Spirit, you're being controlled by something else. But if you are sober, you are in control of your thoughts and actions. That's why it's such an important attribute. And Peter, that's what he means, except... Drugs and alcohol aren't the only things he wants us to avoid. He's urging us here to avoid a mental intoxication whereby we are addicted to stuff which inhibits our spiritual alertness. The opposite of being sober-minded is being lazy-minded. And the picture is you're just being lulled into a sense of carelessness and apathy. You know what the problem with that, the danger with that, is sin is just around the corner. When you get into that mental slowness and laziness and your mind's not in your Christian walk, sin is right around the corner. It's the battle of the mind. It's easy to forget God and the things of God. When you are drawn away from thinking of God and you're instead you're distracted by stuff. When you are intoxicated by the things of this world, 
you lose not, you lose sight of the next world. Your spiritual concentration falters. You're no longer able to identify temptation as temptation. And you're not alert to spiritual realities. And once again, this is just leading you to sin's doorstep when you are so distracted like this. What did Jesus say about the seed sown among the thorns? Do you remember? Why did that seed not bear any fruit? He said, because the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And how many of you today are here and your walk has been slowed to a crawl because you've been choked and distracted by stuff, by other things? Peter's saying you need to have a, a disciplined mind, a sober mind first. Many Christians, they're good about avoiding the bad things. They're really good about avoiding murder and adultery and thievery, whatever. But sometimes the enemy can take you down, not through the front door, but through the back door. Satan sometimes can use good things and tempt Christians to overindulgence in those good things, such that they become mentally intoxicated and consequently distracted from the Christian race. He can take you out through the front door by the overt sins and just disqualify you, or sometimes he can so distract you, you veer off course and you're out of the race. For example, how much TV do you watch? TV, it's not bad in and of itself. But how many Christians do you think have been lulled into a spiritual stupor by watching too much TV? Instead of praying before they go to bed, you turn on the TV. Instead of reading the Bible, you watch a movie. TV is not the only distraction. And again, they're not bad in and of, of themselves, but you know in your life what gets you, what's distracting you. Just ask yourself, what occupies your thoughts as you go to bed and you're laying there waiting to fall asleep? What are you thinking about in those final thoughts of every day? If the majority of the time the answer is stuff, not God, but stuff, you're being distracted. Imagine you, you have to drive to the Grand Canyon from here in one straight shot. It's a long journey. And you're at risk of getting tired, weary, dozing off, and that would have disastrous consequences. So you better drive sober. You better drive alert. You better drive fully awake. And the Christian life is the same way. You have a long journey ahead of you. And if you're going to get through, you need to live soberly and alert and fully awake. Otherwise, you're, you're going to forget your hope. You're going to lose sight of your destination. You're going to get off course somewhere, and that can't happen. That would be more disastrous to your soul. So therefore, what do you do? Be sober-minded. This is a self-control in the mind. 1 Peter 1.13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Do this by preparing your minds for action, girding the loins of your mind, and being sober in your thinking. And this hope, this mindset, is absolutely critical to living a fruitful Christian life. You may wonder, okay, this is the first right response to our salvation, be hopeful, but how is that that big of a deal. I mean, be hopeful. How's that going to help? And the answer is your mind must be directed upward if your feet are to carry you forward. The hope that Peter is admonishing us to, it's not just a you know, pie-in-the-sky hope that has no in impact on our present world and concerns. This hope is so important because if you have it, if you're doing this, if you are fixing your hope completely on what's to come, it's going to change your life in the here and now. It's going to reorder your priorities. If you're really living in light of what's coming, Christ's return, your future salvation, it's going to change the way you live. It's going to change your priorities. It, it's, it has to. And that's why it's so important. That's why it's so critical to your right response to salvation. First, you get your mind right. Second, your life will follow. And this brings us, secondly now, to the way you should respond to salvation. The second way you should respond to so be holy. The first is to be hopeful. 
Secondly now, to be holy. Those who have an untangled, undistracted mind, fixed on the hope of salvation, can then rightly respond with holiness. God wants right thinking. That's verse 13. But he also wants right living. And right thinking leads to and enables the right living. And this, Peter tells us, is also part of the right, the true response to your salvation. He starts off in the negative. Look at verse 14. Negatively, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. He begins by calling us obedient children, or literally children of obedience. And being called children here means we're, we're part of God's family. And so we should act like it. We should act like our father and not part of our old family. Believers should be characterized by uh, obedience. Unbelievers, the lost, which we once were, they're the ones who are characterized by disobedience. Ephesians 2.2, they are the sons of disobedience, which we also once were. But now obedience should mark our lives. Get this straight. Any profession of faith, that does not result in a pattern of true obedience over time is a false profession. Anybody can say, I believe. I can pay someone to say that they believe. But if their life is not bearing fruit and matching their testimony, it's a false profession. But hey, don't take my word. This is what James says in James chapter 2. If obedience is absent from your life, if you're still marked by an unrepentant, rebelliousness, then you're still a child of disobedience. Now, this is not to say that true believers cannot lapse into disobedience. They can. They will. We know this. Because we still have the flesh, that part of our humanity that has not been fully redeemed. We are still sinners, and we still sin. And this is why Peter gives us a call to pursue holiness. That's why he says you, you still have sin, so pursue holiness. Be holy. And true believers, they will respond to this call. They will seek to be holy. He says in the negative, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. This idea of being conformed is that of being forced into a mold and taking the shape of the mold. I remember as a kid, one of the few memories pops in my mind, going to the L.A. Zoo with, you know, the day camp. And they had these machines that would give you a, a wax mold. And I remember going to the gorilla one. You know, you put in one or two quarters, and it takes some wax, it squeezes some hot wax into a mold, it dries quickly, and then out pops your wax gorilla. Carry it around for the rest of the day. And the wax conforms to the image of the gorilla. And that's like us. In a lot of ways. We're, we're like the wax. And every one of us conforms to something. Everyone. The point here is you need to make sure you're conforming to the mold of Christ, not the mold of the world. Everyone's conforming one way or the other. God calls us to nonconformity, not to conform to this world. Some people get this wrong, though. They kind of miss the boat when it comes to not conforming to the world. R.C. Sproul relates how he went to college near Amish country. And the Amish, they're a picture of not conforming to the world. I mean, that's their thing. They, they don't want to conform to the world. And so that's why they, they use horse-drawn buggies, illumined by candles and glass lamps. They don't have zippers or buttons on their clothing. They just have eyes and hooks. They don't even use electricity. They farm by horse-drawn plows and so on. All this is done. Why do they do it? Because they don't want to conform to the world. But this misses the point. Yeah, they're escaping technology, but, but separatists like the Amish, they can still be held captive by, by greed, by strife, by jealousy, immorality, disputes, anger, envy. Their nonconformity misses that which God cares about the most. It's not the things of the world, but as Peter says, it's the lusts of the world. The former lusts 
which were yours in ignorance. These former lusts are those unsanctified longings of the flesh. There are those sinful thoughts and desires, appetites, impulses that used to characterize you. We've got time. Turn with me back to Galatians chapter 5 briefly. So you can see the long list. I alluded to them just a second ago, but see for yourself and always be reminded of that which we need to be avoiding. Galatians 5. In a similar vein, Paul tells us to avoid these things. Galatians 5, look at verse 19. Now he says, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's not even the whole list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is these lusts that you should not be conformed to, that you should avoid. This is what the world's mold looks like. This is what you do not want to be squeezed into as you once were. In the world around us, unbelievers are sinking further and further into these lusts. It's no surprise. Depravity grows worse. And what's happening is that, you know, this list, these things on this list, most of them, they're normal now. They're not even immoral anymore. They've become so common, they become normal. Just think that now in America, it is essentially normal to practice abortion, homosexuality, premarital sex, and adultery. It's normal. And because of this, some believers even can get tempted to return back to their old ways, thinking, that's not that big of a deal. Just like the Israelites were tempted to return to Egypt after the exodus. Peter's saying you have to resist. You have to resist going back to that mold. Resist conformity back to that mold. R.C. Sproul again comments, quote, The oldest argument in the world for defending behavior is that everyone else is doing it. But God does not care what everyone else is doing. God knows what everyone else is doing. He's concerned about what we are doing. And he tells us not to be conformed to those patterns, end quote. Some Christians wrongly think that sanctification comes by isolation. You know, you, you can't walk through a coal mine and not get dirty, so just stay out of the coal mine. You can't walk in the world and not sin, so just stay out of the world, they say. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach sanctification by isolation. It teaches sanctification by insulation. Jesus prayed not that believers would leave the world and just abandon the world, but that they would be kept from the world's evil and sin, that their hearts would be guarded from the lusts of the world. And this is the reminder in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the lusts, to the sins that once characterized you. If you fall, repent, but let them not characterize your life. Do you know this? Yeah, you know this. Am I telling you anything new here? Is Peter? No. But you, you still need this reminder. You need to be reminded to check your own life. You do it. I can't do it for you. Check your own life. Examine your own heart. Is there any area in your life where you're sliding backward? Where you're being conformed to your old pattern? And if you're driving along a stretch of the highway, you're going to see sign after sign saying 65. 65, 65, the speed limit, over and over again. You may wonder, like, why do they keep posting the same sign? Why do they keep repeating themselves? It's because they know after you drive for a little while, you may forget. And you need that reminder. And in your Christian journey, you too need such reminders. Verse 14 is here for that. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours 
in ignorance. Consider your life today. Consider any ways you are being such conformed and turn back. This is the negative side of the call to be holy. Remember, this is secondly the right response, the second right response to our salvation. It's to be holy. Negatively, avoid conformity to our old lusts. Positively now, we come to verse 15. Look there, verse 15. Positively, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And now we see the positive command to be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And that's the main command in these verses. These verse 15 and 16 is to be holy. Simplest way to explain holiness, if you don't know, it's just separateness. To be holy is to be separated away from sin and to be separated unto God. It's like fine china. If you have fine china, in a sense, it's holy. It's separated away from common use and separated unto a special use. And that's kind of like us. God wants believers, his children, to be holy, which means separated from sin, from the evils of the world, from the lusts of the flesh. Did God save us from sin? Did God rescue us from the world? Did God transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Yes. So, do you think he desires us to live accordingly? This is the right response to salvation. Thankfully, true salvation always results in progressive holiness. It's a built-in function of the new birth. When God saves you, he changes your heart through the Spirit and enables you to actually obey him for real for the first time and to please him. And with the Spirit working in us, we will manifest change in holiness over time. It's going to happen. And again, that just shows you, if you see someone who calls himself a Christian, but his built-in function of holiness doesn't seem to be working, it just tells you that there's a good chance such a person has never been born again. That's the warning. Holiness, though, it, it doesn't earn our salvation, but after our salvation by faith, it is the means by which we please God, and it's the gauge by which we can evaluate our relationship with him. I want you to turn over to Colossians 3, because it expands this point. Peter just tells us, be holy. But Colossians really fleshes this out in a way that's very helpful and very similar to what we've been reading. And I want you to see this. Colossians chapter 3. Follow along. Look at verse 1. Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Again, he starts with the mind. Fix your mind on your hope that is to come. Starts with the mind. Verse 3. For, he says, like therefore, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Again, there's that future emphasis. Focus on that future. When Christ comes back, we will find our glorification. Therefore, verse 5, there it is again. Therefore, just like First Peter, consider the members of your earthly body, which we still have until he returns, as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon whom? The sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. You used to be like this. This used to be you. But... Now, verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. Be done with them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Just be done with these things. Don't lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The point he's making is the same point in First Peter. You have been saved. You have had the old self put off and the new self put on. 
Now start living like it. Be done with those old practices. Yeah, they'll still nip at your heels, but do away with them, repent of them, and pursue that holiness. If your life, if this, if we just read your description, you really need to ask, do I truly know the Lord? Back in First Peter, Paul, in uh, Colossians 3 that we just read, he brought several aspects of our character that we need to bring into conformity. Peter takes the overall approach. He just says, be holy in all your behavior. He doesn't give us a list. He just says, be holy in all your behavior. Being 99% obedient to God does not justify 1% of disobedience. He wants all of it. 100% obedience. Imagine I took an egg and I let it sit for a year. It didn't crack the shell open, but I just let it sit for a year. I mean, can you imagine how foul that would be when you crack that thing open after a year and how nasty that would be? Now imagine that I made scrambled eggs with 10 good eggs and this one bad egg. Would you eat it? No, you wouldn't eat it. Why not? Well, it doesn't matter how many good eggs you put in there. You don't want anything to do with that bad one. It's the same with God. He wants total obedience. He doesn't want anything to do with our sin, with our disobedience. There's no excuse. There's no getting by. God can't fellowship with the darkness. And he cannot dwell with that which is not holy. And he demands holiness. He demands a perfect holiness. And we can't get there on our own. But thankfully, we have Christ, who by his death on the cross, his perfect righteousness, he makes us perfectly holy in our position before God. That's what we rest in. But then practically, in our day-to-day living, while we still live in the flesh, God wants us to live out our holy position. Christ saved us and gave us a holy position. God wants us to make our practice match that position. We are to strive to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And speaking of God's perfection, this command to be holy in verse 15, look there. It's sandwiched in between two phrases describing the basis or motivation for our holiness, which is God's holiness. He says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. God's holiness is drives our holiness. Children inherit the nature of their parents. And it's natural for children to want to be like their parents. And so it is with us. God's holy. We should seek to be holy as well. The key word in Peter is like. Verse 15. Be like the Holy One. It's all about likeness here. We are to be like God. Verse 15. Not like the world. Verse 14. We are to resemble Resemble the likeness of God, verse 15, and not the likeness of the world, verse 14. God himself is the Holy One, and he called us, and so we should follow him in his holiness. And verse 16 reminds us of the same thing. It's just making the point that this has long been the case. God gave Israel this same command. In fact, he's quoting the Old Testament here, to be holy based on God's holiness. Three times in Leviticus, he gives the command, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Over and over again. And if you don't know, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. If you've read the book, which you should, God, he gives the people all these rules and regulations. Hundreds. And they're they're particular. Don't wear clothes made of more than one fabric. Don't eat crustaceans or, or pigs. Don't trim the edges of your beard so on, just hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations. And you're supposed to ask, you're meant to ask, why? Why all these rules? The point is holiness. God wanted Israel to observe all these rules so that it would be loud and clear that they were different. They were separate from the surrounding Gentile nations. He was forcing them to be separate. And he wanted them to to show that, to vividly portray how different they were because they served a different God. It was holiness. And though these Levitical laws are not in effect under the law of Christ, we are still bound to be holy. That hasn't changed. You are still to be holy as God is holy. So now you just have to ask yourself, how's your holiness? 
How are you responding to salvation in this regard? Are there any areas in your life in which you are indistinguishable from an unbeliever? Yeah, you come to church on Sunday mornings. Good. But how do you respond at work when things don't go well? How holy is your speech when other Christians are not around? What do you listen to? What do you watch? How do you handle conflict? And when you do fall into sin, what do you do about it? Do you quickly repent or do you stay down and make things worse? God has called you to holiness. How you respond? Today, like I said, it's all about your response. How will you respond? God has given you the, the great privilege of salvation. How will you respond? Turn over to Ephesians 1. We'll, we'll end with this. Ephesians chapter 1. This is a fitting conclusion. Let's look at verses 3 and 4, Ephesians 1. Another word from Paul, Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There again is our privileged and blessed salvation. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We started First Peter a couple weeks ago observing God's election and his choice of us, just like Paul points out here. And thank God for his choice, because if he didn't choose us and call us, we would still be lost. Why did God choose us? Why did he choose us to receive this privileged salvation, this blessing? What does verse 4 say again? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. This has always been the plan. It's always been God's plan. Why does God care about holiness so much? Because he's holy. He wants us to be like him. It's for his glory. It's for our good. This is why you were called, though. This is why you were saved. He has set you apart. He wants you to live like it now. This morning, you need to contemplate the salvation that you have received that we've explored in 1 Peter. And now ask yourself, how will you respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for myself and all here now that we would indeed dwell on the gift we've been given, the blessing of salvation that uh, surpasses all comprehension, Lord. And now how will we live? How will we respond? You call us to a life of holiness, not to earn or deserve our salvation, but simply to please you and to be like you. I intercede for all of us, Lord, that you would give us the strength to do so. We are weak people. The, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. We need your spirit working in us to make us holy. But get us there, Lord. Keep us running the way, race. Disentangle our minds from sin and distraction. Help us to repent of that which we need to and, and get back on track. We need to be a people of holiness. Give us the strength to pursue you and to please you. That the world may know we follow you because of our holiness. But we love and thank you for the gift we have in Christ. It's uh, what we're all about. It makes it all possible. May we leave now committing and resolving again to follow you all the more closely. In your name we pray. Amen.